Welcome in to Words with Wallace. I'm your host, Nick Wallace, coming at you. It is Thursday, June 15th, a couple days after the conclusion of the 2023 NBA Finals, to which, of course, we saw the Denver Nuggets hoist the trophy for the first time ever. First and foremost, congratulations to the Nuggets. Uh, this was an awesome season, man. I'm kind of emotional right now at the end of uh, my first season, uh, you know, doing this podcast and, and really uh, being locked into the NBA more than I've ever been before. So it was a lot of fun. I think we have a very deserving champion, which we'll talk more about. Of course, since the last time that we spoke, we've had two NBA Finals games that we are going to recap today. Uh, shouldn't be a long podcast, so, so let's get right into it, man. Uh, game four was, I think, the most important game of the entire series. Now, if you look at the box score, it wasn't particularly close. It wasn't particularly entertaining. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit more about why. Uh, Denver ends up winning this game, of course, 108-95. to Wasn't particularly close down the stretch. But it was a massive game for the Nuggets because this was a game in which they survived some really tough foul trouble by Jokic. And they survived the non-Jokic minutes in a really big way in the fourth quarter. Um, Jokic picked up his fourth and fifth fouls basically back-to-back with about nine minutes and 24 seconds left in the fourth quarter of this one. One of them was an offensive foul that was pretty tough, Um, and the game was actually 86-76 in Denver's favor. Mike Malone, coach of the Denver Nuggets, did not end up putting back Jokic into the game until there was 4.09 left, and when he eventually did put him in the game, uh, there was only a one-point difference in the league. The lead dropped from a 10-point lead to the Nuggets to a nine-point lead for the Nuggets. So the fact that they were able to survive for, you know, over five minutes in the fourth quarter, to which obviously Miami uh, was pulling out all the stops. They had their best, what they believed to be their best lineup in the game for the entirety of that period. Obviously, Bam and Jimmy being on the court for that time period, and they really weren't able to capitalize. Uh, And reason being, it, it wasn't due to some crazy performance by Jamal Murray. I know he had a massive three um, in between that time that Jokic was on the bench, uh, but really it was was fueled by the efforts of Aaron Gordon and Bruce Brown as well. Um, This was a game that was really telling because Gordon and Brown actually combined for 48 points on 73% shooting from the field, which was pretty incredible, uh, while Jokic and Murray combined for just 38 points, so 10 less points on 36% shooting. And while that's pretty shocking within itself, um, it's even more shocking when you consider that the story and the the book on this Denver team all year was how are they going to survive non-Jokic minutes? Now, obviously, when you get into the playoffs and rotations, you know, shorten up a little bit and coaches have the the freedom and the flexibility to play their best players for longer stretches. There's no more back-to-back games. Obviously, every game is massively important, so they're going to have Jokic on the court for a longer amount of time. But that being said, for them to you know be in Game 4 of the NBA Finals and not have their guy for nearly five minutes, some said that was a questionable decision by Mike Malone. Even with five fouls, they'd like to see Jokic out there. And um, obviously, if he ends up picking up his sixth foul, you just have to adjust at that point instead of just kind of keeping him on the bench uh, as more of a precaution. Uh, but either way, this was a team that wasn't able to survive these minutes all year. And again, it wasn't due to a, a, a crazy hot shooting performance from Jamal Murray. No, Gordon was unbelievable in this game. So was Bruce Brown. Unbelievably efficient uh, from these guys, both shooting you know, basically over 70% from the field. Um, and it ended up winning them a game in, in, a, in a major way and putting them in a huge spot to go back to uh, Denver for Game 5 and have an opportunity to close out the series. So... Moving on to Game 5, I think that this one was far and away the most entertaining game of the series. I'm sure a lot of people might disagree just because it was pretty low scoring. Uh, Denver ended up winning this game 94-89. to 
Uh, it was an absolute rock fight, man. It it felt kind of like a game seven. I don't know. Maybe I'm just, you know, gassing it a little bit right now. But I don't know. It just with how tight everybody was from the gate. I think Denver started off the game with like three turnovers or something like that. Um, so you could tell that these guys were nervous. They did not want to see this game go back to Miami for game six. Um, the crowd was obviously super electric for that, having the opportunity to win it all in front of your home floor. Mike Breen just in his bag. Like, I love this is a random Mike Breen tangent. I just love Mike Breen so much. He's, he's easily the best in the business. And in this game in particular, he was just perfect. I watched it back today just to kind of remember everything that happened. And I just, my biggest takeaway was just like, damn, Mike Breen was, was so entertaining uh, to listen to during this game. So it felt like a game seven. Obviously, both sides you know, we're going to go all out. And Miami certainly did not roll over in this one. They, they you know, as, as it was the case all series, nothing came easy for Denver. Uh, but they were able to, you know, find a way to win this game in the end, of course. You know, the big story of the game is in the fourth quarter when things were tight. Miami had a pretty big run to put themselves back into the game and, and get themselves a lead. And it was almost entirely from Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler ended up scoring the last 13 points of the game for the Heat. Um, which was pretty heroic. It was a stretch where, you know, it was kind of the Jimmy game we were kind of waiting for the entirety of the finals, and it felt like we were finally going to get it. Uh, but unfortunately for Jimmy, man, you know, the last couple plays for him really didn't go his way after, you know, obviously heroically scoring 13 consecutive points for his team. He looked really exhausted, and I'm sure most of you guys remember watching this live. Um, you know, that one play in particular with, you know, less than a minute left, you know, he has Jamal Murray in an isolation situation. He gets to his spot in the middle of the lane, Picks up his dribble. You know, I felt like it was, you know, going to be a classic, you know, Jimmy kind of lowers his shoulder, maybe gives an up fake, something like that. He just looked really tired and, and kind of panicked out there. Ends up pivoting around and throwing a terrible pass that got picked off by KCP, which was obviously a crucial turnover. KCP gets fouled, uh, goes to the free throw line, makes both free throws. And then after that, on the subsequent possession... Jimmy Butler, you know, the heater down three in this situation. Um, it looks like the, the initial play was to get Duncan Robinson a look. He wasn't open. The ball finds its way back in the hands of Jimmy Butler. Hoists up a terrible three that hits the backboard first, and then that's basically ball game. So, you know, overarching thoughts on, on Jimmy, and we'll talk more about him in a sec, is, you know, I just felt bad for the guy. He has been was such a competitor this entire run, obviously the best player on this Miami team that was pretty devoid of talent and, and basically at a talent disadvantage in, I would say, at least three out of the four series that they played in. Um, so it was really tough that, you know, people are going to remember the turnover. They're going to remember the brick three, I'm sure. Uh, but hopefully they remember the 13 straight points uh, that he scored for his team to close out that game as well before that. Um, and again, just kind of like what the case was in game four. I know, again, Jokic was really special in this game, too. He was the only dude in this game that shot above 50%. He shot like 75% from the field. I think he was 12 of 16 shooting. He was in incredible. But it was still really cool at the end of the game. Uh, it was 89-90. Miami was actually up. And the last six points of the game were scored by Bruce Brown and KCP. Uh, Bruce Brown had a crazy, you know, right place, right time tip in to, to give Denver a one-point lead to put them up 91 to 90 and then after that KCP had two clutch free throws and then after Jimmy's missed three Bruce Brown had the final dagger knocking down both shots to the line so those are four really tough free throws from guys that are not normally in the situation to take those right you would like to see the ball in Jamal Murray's hands I'd imagine uh, but KCP and Bruce Brown uh, were able to close them out and they were able to win with another really strong performance from Denver's role players so you know that being said you know 
It was a really awesome series. It was really special to watch Denver hoist the trophy, which we'll talk about in a sec. But before we get into, you know, this outlook and, and my commentary from the Denver perspective, I, you know, just wanted to talk about Miami one last time here. Um, you know, what a run it was for them, right? This was a really special run for Miami. Uh, and the big difference for them, you know, just looking at where they were at in the Eastern Conference Finals to where they were at in the NBA Finals, um, it's pretty obvious that it comes down to the production from the Miami role players above all else. I know Denver is a more talented team than the Celtics. I think that's uh, pretty safe to say at this point in time. But, you know, Caleb Martin going from 19 points a game against the Celtics to 7 points a game. Uh, Gabe Vincent going from 16 points a game in the Eastern Conference Finals to 11 points a game. Even guys like Duncan Robinson and Max Struess going from 11 and 9 points per game, respectively, um, to 8 and 6 points, respectively, in the finals compared to where they were at in the Eastern Conference Finals. That's tough to overcome. That's really tough to overcome. I know Jimmy's scoring dropped off a little bit in the finals as well. I think Bams actually went up quite a bit um, since he had some big offensive games. But that's really tough to overcome for a team that is, again, pretty devoid of all-star talent. I think what those stats and the drop-off from the Eastern Conference Finals to the Finals, what that really highlighted was, look, it did kind of feel like some of the, the pixie dust that Miami was running on in that Celtic series. Um, you know, it kind of lost its luster. It kind of went away. They were kind of running on fumes at that point. But, you know, it's just a lot to ask of a team to go into Denver, play in, in a really difficult spot to play where Denver uh, was amazing at home all season long. You know, for them to go in there and, and at least steal one of those games and, and still make it competitive three out of the five games, um, I'm really impressed with Miami. I think Coach Spo pulled all the strings that he really could have in a series like that. Obviously, there's no obvious adjustments to what they could do differently. They did keep Murray in check the last couple games of the series as well, which is worth noting. Jokic is the best player in the world and is you know truly unstoppable at this point in time. So you know you're really just picking your poison with how you want to defend him because uh, he's going to find a way to dissect it and exploit your weakness uh, no matter what type of coverage you use to throw at him. Um, and I just think it's you know one last talk about Jimmy Butler here. Um, I think this guy, he's, he's going to be always really difficult to rank, especially it's, you know, where you would want to rank him as far as the top players in the league, you know, it really comes down to what time of year you're asking that question, because, you know, in the regular season, it, you'd be crazy to even say he's, you know, a top 20 guy for the most part. And then, you know, when it comes to the postseason where it really matters the most, that's a different conversation. I feel like Jimmy has solidified himself as a top 10 player in the NBA because of what he has done in the postseason three out of the last four years, uh, making it to, of course, the finals in the bubble, uh, what, four years ago now, making it to the Eastern Conference Finals, or three years ago now, I should say, making it to the Eastern Conference Finals last year and being one shot away from going to the finals just one year ago, and then what he did this year, this is what matters the most, man. He's, you know, again, when RJ and I were doing that draft a couple weeks back and discussing you know, playoff players you'd want to have in your team. I think I picked him about, you know, six in that draft. Again, we were only selecting out of players in round two, so it's a little different. But either way, I stand by that pick. I think everything we know about Jimmy Butler has been solidified because, you know, you can't just point to the bubble and say that was a fluky run. You know, you can't just point to that Miami team last year and say, well, hey, they were the one seed we kind of expected them to be at that point. Even when the odds are stacked against them, um, you know, Jimmy's a really special guy. Obviously, you know, his, the shooting wasn't quite there and it, it came back down to earth and, and was more in the ballpark of what we'd see from regular season Jimmy. He certainly wasn't as good as what he was in the Milwaukee series, but he's an absolute competitor. He's a guy anybody would want in your team. He's a two-way player. Um, and I do think while he had a really special postseason, I wanted to kind of ask the question to you guys. Do you think he's the biggest winner from the postseason, right? Or the biggest riser in terms of where you thought of a player before the postseason to where they are now. 
I think the three names that come to mind are, of course, Jimmy, as we just talked about. I think it has to be Jokic. I think he only really jumped up one spot for me, uh, going from what I would probably have put him as the second best player in the world before the playoffs to he's definitely wearing that belt, that title right about now. I think he surpassed Giannis for me with winning this title. Uh, certainly hard to argue against him. Even though he only moved up one spot, that's still the one spot that matters the most, right? And I think the other name that comes to mind, I know he's been out for a couple rounds now, is Devin Booker. He's a guy that I never really took super serious. It's like a top 10 player in the league before the playoffs. But the stuff he did during the first two rounds of the playoffs were so incredible. And they were the only team to even beat Denver more than once in this entire postseason run. And it was because he literally played perfect basketball in those two games. And obviously got a lot of help from Kevin Durant in those wins as well. But uh, I do think that despite the fact that Jimmy... Uh, had solidifies himself as a top 10 player in the league. I think he's you know, probably floating around that 9-10 spot. I think he's right in the bubble. During the regular season, you'd probably drop him down to, like again, outside the top 20. But at the end of the day, I think we all know where Jimmy stands. Um, despite that, I, I think Booker was actually the biggest riser uh, during this entire playoff picture. Um, and then, of course, you know we have to talk about the Nuggets, right? Obviously, again, congratulations to, to the Denver Nuggets and their fan base. It's been a long time coming. This is the first time the team had even made it to the finals, let alone win a championship. So this is obviously a very special time for them. Um, I just wanted to, to give my two cents on the who did they beat argument, um, because that's something that seems to come up virtually every year, right? Okay, who did they beat? Uh, people talked about it, you know, with the Chiefs during the Super Bowl for no reason, like, it's it's pretty funny, and it's always going to be a bad argument if you're talking about a team that just won a title, and then you have to ask, well, who did they beat uh, as your counter-argument to sort of, like, devalue that title? It's always been bad, but I think in this case, it's especially bad. Now, I know when you look at the argument on paper, it says they beat an 8-seed in Minnesota, they beat a 4-seed in Phoenix, they beat a 7-seed in the Lakers, and then they beat another 8-seed in the NBA Finals with the Miami Heat. But if you actually watched any of the games, you know that this doesn't tell the full story, not even close. I would say with conviction, they beat, you know, obviously outside of themselves, the other two best teams in the Western Conference. How quickly we forget that they were literally not favorited against in the series against Phoenix in round two. Like people, I, I believe the Vegas favorite in, in that at the start of that series was that Phoenix was going to come out on top. They were favored to win that series and Denver overcame that. It's because Phoenix is obviously loaded with star power. Now, I know they came up short with a couple injuries, but I probably could have told you that anyway, right? That's like the biggest beef everyone has with Phoenix is that nobody believes they can really stay healthy. Uh, so the fact that they beat, again, what I think the two best teams in the Western Conference besides themselves, I probably would have said Golden State before the playoffs, but the Lakers beat them pretty handily. So I think the Lakers solidified themselves as like the third most talented team in the Western Conference. And they ran through them in four games. That's really impressive, man. Uh, I, the Wolves were kind of a rollover in round one, but they earned that being the one seed in the West, I'll admit that. And then you get to the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference Finals and be like, yeah, they you know, they beat Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, and, and they beat an eighth seed in the Finals. Well, that's the same eighth seed that beat, you know, with conviction, the two best teams in basketball during the regular season. They obviously ran through Milwaukee in round one. They ran through, you know, the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals. Those, those teams had the two best records in basketball. They were the two teams that I thought with conviction that were, you know, the title was going to go through a matchup of the Celtics and the Bucks in the Eastern Conference Finals. And that, of course, was not the case. So, again, it's a shitty argument no matter what. But to say that, you know, the Denver Nuggets didn't beat anybody on their road to a championship, you know, that that's just a, a classic late June NBA headline and somebody looking to fill a segment on a radio show or something like that, because that could not be farther from the truth. 
Uh, again, I talked about it before. I think game four uh, might not have been the most entertaining game, but it was the most important game of the series. It was pretty poetic for Denver to come out and find a way to win without Jokic and survive the non-Jokic minutes in a massive way. Um, I felt like at that moment in time, it was, if it wasn't obvious enough already, they, they earned it, right? They, you know, they answered questions about winning on the road. They answered questions about their depth. They answered questions about what, what type of team are they without Jokic on the court. Um, and they did it in a really, you know, major way by, you know, having to be without Jokic for five consecutive minutes in the fourth quarter uh, of a NBA finals game and finding a way to win that one. Um, that was awesome. It was also awesome to see a guy like Michael Porter Jr., who, you know, pretty openly struggled shooting the ball the entirety of the finals. I think he was well below 20% shooting from three, which, you know, that was kind of the book on him before the series. It's like, hey, he's like a 6'10 Clay Thompson, right? I've heard that thrown around here and there, and, and he couldn't shoot for shit. And he still couldn't shoot in game five, but he found a way to make some really big plays. He came up with 16 uh, points, 13 rebounds, and three assists, despite the fact that, again, he still shot one of six from three in this game. Um, and 16 and 13 in a, in a game like game five, where, you know, his team ended up with 94 points and it was an absolute rock fight. Uh, yeah, that was really massive for him. He had some incredible highlights too, a great take to the basket. He had some big boards that, you know, he quickly passed the ball up the court for important outlet passes. Uh, MPJ was awesome. And I think he uh, is actually a, a big piece a big piece of this team moving forward uh, because I think an overarching thought on the Nuggets are that, you know, they can actually get better too. Uh, that's kind of the scary thing, right? Like, you know, you look at their roster heading into next season and really the only obvious candidate for someone who should be on another team next year is probably Bruce Brown. I mean, I think he was on a one-year deal and that dude's going to get paid, man. Like with how big he was in game four, um, scoring four of the last six points for the Nuggets in game six as well. He was incredible for them as like a backup point guard for the majority of the season. Um, and it, and playing a totally different role than what he did for the Nets. I mean, he was basically like a power, a undersized power forward for the Nets last year. So uh, Bruce Brown's going to get paid and he's probably out of there. But you look at the rest of their, you know, the seven of their other eight man rotation in the playoffs, they're all going to be back. Uh, it is presumed, right? And I think that there's actually room for Michael Porter Jr. to get better. Again, he wasn't great in the finals shooting the ball. He wasn't, you know, really play. He didn't really have a good game until game five anyways. Um, so if he, you know, kind of reaches another level of his game where, you know, he really is a two-way threat, um, obviously he's he's already, his rebounding is already on the level where you'd want it to be. Um, and usually his shooting is as well. But if he could become more of a creative scorer in the mid-range and attacking the basket and then, you know, still improve a little bit more on defense, I know he's already come a long way in that department and becomes truly a third star on that team, they're going to be virtually impossible, you know, to stop. Uh, so yeah, man, I, I think that this Nuggets team is legit. I think that they really did check every box. I, I think that's the best way to say it, right? They, again, everything that they overcame, you know, winning on the road, you know, still defending their home court, you know, finding a way to win without Jokic, um, you know, winning with a massive Jokic game, winning a game in which both Jokic and Murray put up 30 point triple doubles, you know, winning a game where they both, both those guys struggled shooting in the field and the role players had to stay up, uh, or step up, I should say. Um, it was really special. They're, they're well-deserving of this title. And, and, you know, I think the last thing that I wanted to comment on here was, you know, after the game, right? I, I really, I'm a nerd about this stuff, right? I think we, you know, a lot of us, you know, can become pretty nerdy in that sense where I can't be the only one out there that really likes watching, you know, immediately after, you know, a team wins the title, really in any sport, right? Like watching, you know, the camera find different players and, you know, people on the winning team, people on the losing team, the coaching staff, the fans, how special it is of a moment. I was so sad watching Jokic after winning. Like, 
one thing that I've always been pretty firm on, like, I know the narrative around Jokic was like, oh, he just doesn't care. Like, he, he doesn't care if he gets MVP. He doesn't care how many points he gets, how many, what, how many rebounds he has. He just cares about winning games and this and that, right? Like, and I, I was like, sure, like, I get it. I'm not saying the guy doesn't care. But, you know, just because he's foreign and not on Twitter, we're just supposed to assume he doesn't have an opinion about anything and he doesn't love the game of basketball. I never, never bought into that shit. I was always like, that is so overplayed. Like, I'm never going to talk about that. But then I watched him after they won the title, right? And obviously the first thing he did after they won is he shook hands with, like, literally everybody on the Heat. Like, he's dapping up Haslam. He's dapping up Haywood Highsmith, who barely got any minutes, right? He he, he shook everybody's hand, which was, like, that, that shit was super cool, right? But, like, after he just looked, like, so, like, he just looked kind of, like, relieved, I guess. Like, it wasn't, like, ecstatic. It wasn't emotional. Uh, it wasn't this moving, like, lifelong dream situation. Like, you had guys like Jamal Murray who overcame a massive injury and was, like, crying. And it was exactly what you would expect him to see in a situation like that. And Jokic just did not give a shit, man. And then, of course, the clip that went viral where, like, you know, somebody asked him about how if he's looking forward to the parade, which was earlier today, actually. Uh, and he's like, no, no, I, I have to go home. Like, <laughs> like, what do you mean you have to go home? Like, enjoy this. Like, be with the people that you just went on this nine-month journey with you played you know what like a hundred games of basketball in the, in the past six six seven months like you know this is an incredible achievement like even if you personally don't value it as much as others like just for the the joy that your teammates feel right in, in situations like that and the coaches and what this means to them like it was actually pretty depressing to watch Jokic win the title but I will say that today again on, on Thursday June 15th there was a clip of him you know, pretty hammered at the parade. So he did stay for the parade. He didn't go home back to Serbia. Um, you know, he stayed and he thanked the fans. And he's like, I know I didn't want to stay for this, but this is awesome. I, I never want to leave the parade. It was it was a great, like, 30-second little speech he had to the crowd. So, you know, he kind of made up for it in that book. But I did want to want to mention that it was really, really depressing to watch that guy uh, win an NBA title. And there probably is some merit to how little that guy gives a shit about basketball. He is definitely there to collect a paycheck to feed his family, and he just happens to be really, really good at a game that he very much treats as a job. So uh, that guy's a, a cyborg or something, man. I, don't, I can't believe how good he is. Um, not to say he's not passionate about it. He clearly has enough, you know, the work ethic and what it takes to win. But, uh, yeah, man, it's pretty shocking to see somebody reach the peak of their craft and still have that, ah, it's, it's my day job mentality, right? You don't often see those two things together. But maybe Jokic is just that good. I think that just about does it for me, man. You know, I feel like most of the NBA storylines right now, like we are in, we're kind of in peak filler season. Like, I guess not peak filler season, but it's definitely a weird time if the, if the NBA Finals doesn't end up going like seven games uh, because we have this full week before the NFL draft and, or it's the NBA draft, excuse me. So I know there's a lot of draft preview stuff, but, and, and I don't really want to get into that because frankly, I haven't been watching college basketball. I've been pretty uh, wrapped up in everyday life and then, you know, trying to watch as much NBA on top of that. So I don't know much about, you know, some of the prospects coming in outside of the top three guys in this draft. So it would be a waste of my time and your time for me to rattle off my thoughts on, you know, a, a 10 minute, you know, YouTube highlight clip of the Thompson twins and shit like that. Like I'm not, I'm not going to waste my time in pretending I know stuff about that. So if you're not a draft analyst guy, all the storylines are speculation, right? Like we still don't have an update on the Chris Paul situation that we talked about last episode. I guess he hasn't been released yet. So I don't really know where that report from Shams uh, came from. You know, I, I guess he hasn't walked it back yet. Maybe he has. I don't know. But as far as I know, Chris Paul is still a member of the Phoenix Suns, as he should be until at least uh, July 1st, right? And then, you know, we have speculation that uh, I guess Beal and the Wizards are working on a trade. 
that kind of bores me. It's like, I don't, I, I know he's been wrapped up in some Celtics talks. I absolutely do not want Bradley Beal on my team. I do not, I, I guess I can't say that. In, in, in a vacuum, I'd like him. I don't want his contract. I certainly don't want to move Jalen Brown for him. That would be utterly ridiculous and just put us in a worse spot for next year. Um, so I just don't really think Bradley Beal w- w- attached to that contract is going to be a, a needle mover. Um, he would have to be a part of a really special team um, that's already really poised to win a championship, you know, for Beal to be the, the straw that gets him over the hump, right, and, and it ends up getting them a title. So I don't really see him ever being a needle mover. There's always the, you know, the annual speculation with Dame and Portland that doesn't really seem to be moving in any direction. Uh, maybe that'll work itself out after the draft. But Right now, it's just a lot of speculation, so a lot of stuff that, you know, beyond what I just covered, isn't really worth talking about. So, with that, we are a week away from the NBA draft. I will be, um, you know, most likely, I'll, maybe I will, you know, kind of dive into some uh, draft prep and, and give my initial thoughts. But most likely, I'll just, you know, probably do an episode the Friday after, the Saturday after the draft, once everything is shaken out, and give my reaction uh, you know, even if I don't know everything there is to know about these prospects, it's still interesting to evaluate who won and lost the draft based on some of the trades that were made, based on you know some of the team needs and how they were able to address that, based on you know some of the perceived value that they gave and and picks that they acquired. Like you know, if a team, whether whether you like a guy or not, if you if you have a guy that everybody else has on you know ranked as their thirtieth best player and a GM takes him at six. That's still a loss because, you know, you have to be able to find a way to move your capital around to not overpay drastically for a guy like that unless he immediately becomes an all-star level player upon drafting him. Uh, but either way, that's still a loss on draft night. So I can always evaluate winners and losers of the draft. And then this following week, we will have NBA free agency, which will be very exciting. And that will be a really great time where after that, maybe I can kind of redo the tier ranking after the draft and after free agency. And we can go through every team and uh, kind of see where we're at on, you know, contenders, pretenders, the tankers, whatever you want to call it, you know, one piece away teams. I think that'll be a fun time to evaluate that and see how I do uh, come this time next year. Uh, but yeah, I think beyond that, I'll just be, you know, once I'm done covering those events, we'll try to get some voices from around the NBA, try to get some beat reporters on here and see if we can uh, chop it up and get some inside scoops on some teams that are pretty interesting this off season and uh, see if I can sell some people on jumping on the pod. Uh, maybe we can bring RJ back to talk Celtics. Maybe we can get creative with some episodes to, you know, tier rank some players or, you know, ranking the top 10, you know, players in the NBA by position and go through a couple episodes that way. But I say all that to say I'm not going anywhere this offseason. The episodes will probably get a little shorter, but I'll still be trying to get you a Words with Wallace episode once a week moving forward. So with that, guys, I'm going to hit this button and get up out of here, and I will talk to you most likely after the draft. Peace.